Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm well, and I want to just slide in here that North American adult male bears can weigh up to 550 pounds. That's a lot of weight. I saw something on the internet that was, uh, what was it? It was grizzly bear versus silverback gorilla. Who you got? I love those. Yeah. I got gorilla. I, I went with the gorilla. Oh, that's interesting. You know, that's a, uh, I mean, we'd want to sort of see that played out in, in, in cyberspace or the metaverse, but isn't it weird how, you know, North American, we got no problems with geography and using the word American there. Adult, we've got an ageist thing. Male bear, we know no problem with gender there and weight. You know, as long as we're talking about animals, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder yeah. if one of the big themes of our time is, uh, you know, we're trying to distance ourselves from embodiment and from animalia, you know, at a time when we really need to be connected with that to, uh, you know, maybe have a chance of surviving at all and rethinking our planetary strategy. But it seems like a lot of what we're doing is really about the human social thing. But yeah. um, anyway, I want to know you you've had a little break and you you're you look refreshed, you sound refreshed. Uh you and Rios were off in Taos, New Mexico, with a little snow on the ground, I saw. Yeah, there was snow on the ground. Wow. Taos is beautiful. It's a place that I want to retire to. I think that it's good to have where you're going to retire in mind from a young age. It sounds more negative and goth than I mean for it to, but I feel like you need to know where you're going to die. At least have a general idea. It can change. I'm not negative about that. <laughs> but we Why went to Taos. Go ahead. Why would you say that? About, oh, yeah, about it being negative. Yeah, no, but I, uh, some interesting things happened when we were in Taos. So it did snow. It was very beautiful. The Airbnb was off the main road. Uh, a lot of dirt roads. I got to use my, uh, you know, going into first gear down a snowy hill, which doesn't happen oh, yeah, in Oklahoma. Uh, but yeah. we were sitting in the room because we do this type of thing to to write, to, to either start or finish projects. Rios is working on a short story collection that's very close to being done. I'm beginning a new novel. And so... At one point, we were taking a break. Maybe we were having dinner, and I opened up the New York Times, and there was an article about uh, AI, specifically AI art, and it was written by the gentleman who directed Hodorowsky's Dune, that documentary about the Dune that was not to be, right. and right. the picture in the article that they used of Hodorowsky was of him in 1969 in Dennis Hopper's house in Taos, New Mexico. So I thought, oh, nice synchronicity there. I dig it. But I got some cool souvenirs. We went to the Pueblo, the Taos Pueblo Reservation, saw the 1,200-year-old structure that they have there, which is very 
beautifully balanced against the backdrop of the mountains. The mountains slope this away, and the and the pueblo slopes that away into a kind of U shape when you can take the whole thing in. But we went into this place and this. Um, I bought Rios some an expensive piece of jewelry. You know, you go to these places. I didn't want to haggle with anybody, so they tell me the price. I pay it. Totally fine. So I got her a very nice necklace. Uh, I got myself a little storyteller pendant, which I do not have on me. I think she's got it. But this woman was selling these uh, these carved bears. Let me get some light on this so you can see it better. Uh, here. This might be a little... That's even more awkward. Yeah. Well, that's a large version of my Zuni bear fetish. Yeah, yeah, which I have one of those too. Uh, let me turn this light off because that didn't work the way I wanted it to. So this is my Zuni bear fetish right here. Yeah. And then this is this, uh, it's for protection and courage, but this is the coolest thing that I picked up was this, this guy, right? And I'm hoping that he doesn't scare Gus in, in later years, but check, check this guy out. Oh, look. Oh, he's beautiful. He's got a watermelon that he's cutting open. Yeah, I don't know if he would. Well, look, I mean, a little bit of scare there is kind of reasonable, isn't it? It's sort of it's so magical. Yeah, yeah. But he is a uh, warrior, but also a kind of shamanistic figure, a sort of trickster figure. Yeah, Um, he's got this kind of this cool hair, but it's all carved out of out of wood. You can see the the base here. It's all carved out of that's it. That's lovely magic. I think Gus would get right with that without being freaked out. I think that's uh, or freaked out in a good way. You know, that's that's yeah. all. I thought I thought you'd like him. I, I thought you'd dig that one. I think the bear thing alone is amazing because we didn't talk about that off mic, and mm-hmm. that's a nice little just automatic synchronicity with uh, you know. I was thinking about uh, yeah. male bears running five hundred fifty pounds. That you know, it's it's. Yeah. That is lovely. That is. He's lovely. a cool-looking guy, and they have these little gemstones that they mine from around that that area. That they, that's apparently. Let's see if I can get it up close to the. You see that and turquoise? I'm glad you don't haggle. You know, there there is a time for haggling. I think in certain world markets, you know, in certain, you know, sometimes it really is important, and it's an important thing if you're, you know, if you kind of. Well, particularly if you're traveling alone, not to uh, look like a pushover. But a lot of times I think that attitude is just so wrong, particularly when you see things, you know, that are really beautiful like that. And you're dealing directly with the people making them. And Mm -hmm. it's just, there's no rule about it in my book, but I think that you have to have an intuitive sense of when, when to haggle and when not to. And it does you no harm. It does your soul no harm not to haggle, you know? I, with this in particular, this guy was 150 bucks. The bear was 40. And then a pair of earrings that Rios wanted was something like $30. And the uh, the woman could tell that we were deciding how we wanted to, we were deciding between the bear and the guy, right? And businesswoman, old Pueblo woman has yeah. seen it all. She <laughs> says, are you coming? She says, I'll give you all three for 175. And I said, you got a deal. That's, that's an incredible deal. So she did the haggling for me. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't even have to say anything. 
Well, I, I dare say she's made a few deals like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's all part, you know, that's a, a good example of where there's a real richness to that whole transaction that you just don't normally get. I mean, you do get the psychology of to haggle or to not haggle. You get her involvement and that exchange. And you not only get the stuff to take home and have in your hands, you also get a story, which is mm-hmm. also something you can hold in your hands in a way. Well, I and I, I, I walked into one because uh, it's all these people's houses. And I walked into this one Pueblo house with a you know it had this uh fake wood laminate floor and a beautiful you know clay stove and tools everywhere and this man who's had to be in his mid 80s perhaps was hard at work etching a piece of sterling silver with these symbols and so i asked him i said what are you working on sir and he told me and he said, I've got one of these right here. It's a, it's a storyteller amulet. And he was telling me, you know, it's got the rabbit, the bear, the feather, and it's a, you know, it's a necklace. That's the place where Rios, this, this one caught her eye, three different stones landed together. And I saw it catch her eye. And I said, you want that? And she said, Oh no, 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 it's too, cause it was a $170 for this thing. And she was like, no, 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 that's too much. And I said, I got you. You got it. As the man, you got to do that every once in a while. Just like I see you looking. But I thought it was cool to talk to the guy. You know, this shop was amazing. It had bows and arrows and, you know, drums and uh, a bunch of old pictures. And I really felt that, you know, we went on a Saturday and that's their time for, that's probably where they make most of their money. We also purchased a a room spray with pinion that the children of the Pueblo make. They learned how to distill the pinion in a copper distillery and make these kind of fragrances that are good for your nervous system. And I said, well, I do, I do get nervous every once in a while. So, uh, but we saw, so we did that. And then we, on our way out, we visited the Catholic church in there. There was no photography allowed, obviously, but it was, one of the most beautiful little setups they had. They had a coffin in the corner that represented uh, Jesus Christ. So no Christ on the cross, plenty of Christ statues, but a a coffin covered in a white uh, blanket with little doilies on the, on the edges that uh, gave off that kind of creepy air that only syncretic Catholic yeah, that's the churches word. can uh, give uh, off. Yeah, syncretic is the word. That's a really lovely example of it. Uh, a kind of muta, you know, mutation of two religious orientations into some sort of hybrid form. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah. But I, I had a great time. We had some good pizza. We had some Mexican food that was so good. I had the chili relleno and I took one bite of it and I saw all the seeds fall out of the pepper and it was hot and I yeah. knew I was going to pay for it. So I was up at 5 AM after that <laughs> paying for that pepper. I had so it was so bad. I actually took my computer not to be too gross, but I took my computer into the restroom with me because I thought I might as well get some work done. If I'm, if I'm up and it's suffering. Finally navigated the line of too much information and just enough. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> But no, it was great. I did come back feeling refreshed and I did uh, have a really good time there. 
the watching the snowfall was very cool gave off jeremiah johnson vibes and uh the view was amazing and that's when it was solidified for me like i have to make it there and then i looked at house prices there and i thought jesus christ i gotta make some fucking money <laughs> I think that was true a long time ago. I mean, people like Hopper yeah. do a lot to, you know, not, you know, really boost things up. Uh, but you know, it's been so popular with, you know, O'Keefe and I mean DH Lawrence. Uh, the whole Native American culture thing is is amazing there. I mean, that's probably one of the major centers in America, really, um, with respect to to many others. But uh, and there's a great since you're going to be going back, the lightning field is an amazing earth art installation. It like all of these things, it takes some effort to get there. Uh, but it is, it is so beautifully sighted where it is. It's worth, worth the effort. If, if one is in uh, New Mexico, I think it's a great state, absolutely great state. Oh, uh, before I forget uh, we Rios and I will be in Vegas in May if you wanted to hang out. Okay. Neither here nor there for the show, but. Well, that's when my uh, big art show is in Seattle. So we'll have to see about that, but I would love to, I mean, I'm, I'll be, I'll be in Vegas at some point. Uh, the installation dates are the, are the April 26th through May 4 is the installation times. So I will mm-hmm. have to be in Seattle for that, but we'll, um, it would be great. It'd be great to, uh, oh, we have to do that. Well, I'm mm-hmm. glad you told me. I'll put that in my diary. So as we do at the top of the show, Chris, do you have a band and an aphorism for us? I do. And I've got two of each because I've been excited. The first one, first band name is kind of simple. It's a, it's a solo artist called Transgressive Otter as opposed to Bad Bunny. And his whole deal is just a kind of ongoing feud with Bad Bunny musically, the same way the kind of Eminem and the insane clown posse kind of duked it out, you know? Yeah. But the the main band is called Black Box Protocol. And their (laughs) first album is called Emission Accomplished. And... (laughs) What they're doing is based on uh, they're they're as much inventors as they are musicians, uh, and they're software people. They've developed a new type of MIDI music that is based on biofeedback, especially human neurological excitations, uh, as in those created by transcranial magnetic stimulation. And they get this weird mix of sort of some Beach Boys sound via the Swedish National Electronic Music uh, Studio, Tangerine Dream, and a weird sort of link uh, to Diamanda Galas, the sort of, uh, you know, operatic industrial Yep, goth, strange thing. Um, and some of their song titles are Paranoid Schematic and Mind Festation. So Ooh, I like Mind Festation. That's good. Yeah, thank you. So Transgressive Otter, just a light one, Black Box Protocol, and their first full album, Emission Accomplished. 
Okay, so I've got two aphorisms too. And one, um, well, one sort of takes the form of a kind of neo haiku. A relative is coming to visit. Suddenly, a winter fly in the kitchen. So, kind of a Jack Kerouac sort of take on haiku, not, not formally a haiku, but in that vein. But then a little, uh, a more aphoristic aphorism. Um, which I think works certainly for writers, but you know, in general, the more author you have in front of you, the better the reader you become. So with that first one is interesting because my first thought is that the relative is, you know, is the fly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. There's a, kind of and, a link there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I um I like that. I like the fact that it's a winter fly as well. This is a relative who's supposed to be dead. <laughs> yeah, and also because as you I mean you've you you know flies are not something that you see usually in winter, you know. I mean right. it's, it's a summer fly, well, you know, there there are flies all over, you know. Everyone's mm -hmm. porch, if you have a porch, uh it's not unusual even in cities, you know. But I think a, there is something about a winter fly. They're always really more alone, you know, than 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 other than they seem at other times of year. Even mm -hmm. though that could be not true, oftentimes they hatch in uh, infestations of their own. But I'm glad you like that. And I've cooked up an um, an imaginative challenge that is straight down the line mainstream storytelling and it's got an interesting rider or kicker to it okay one of my favorite genres of story whether it be storybook tv or film is the evil children shtick i just love that i'm thinking just i mean there's there's the bad seed as being just a one-off individual psychodemon or the omen and stuff. No, I'm talking about children. So this is a group thing, and that's part of the power of it. Uh, I, I watched Cronenberg's The Brood for, I hadn't seen that in ages, and I tripped mm -hmm. it on that. I love, uh, well, Children of the Corn makes me laugh my head off. I love The Village of the Damned, the novel that mm -hmm. that's based mm -hmm. on. The Midwich Cuckoos. I don't know if you've read or, or if listeners had. It is an absolutely fantastic book. It has some of the best sections in it I've ever read. Um, he was a really good writer. He actually had kind of one theme about humanity facing an extinction crisis because of superior uh, encountering a superior biological form. And uh, but the Village of the Damned, I just think, I love that theme. Um, the Lord of the Flies, of course, and the much better story, A High Wind in Jamaica. Again, Ooh, I, Yeah, High Wind uh, in Jamaica. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That is, uh, I mean, with respect to William Golding, he did win the Nobel Prize. I think Lord of the Flies is, is a bit formulaic and kind of, it is a YA novel. I'm not sure a high wind in Jamaica is. That seems pretty harrowing to me. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. That's you know, a it, that's a lost explorer's callback. Yeah, me. it is definitely. I'm glad. I'm glad you think so because it just. 
I'm amazed by it. So we're placing you solidly into this, the evil children genre. And there are two uh, writers kickers to the premise. One, you have to come up with something that as a, a relatively new parent, genuinely puts some fear in, in your fatherly heart. You've got to really, really buy into this. And secondly, to keep with our mainstream theme, somehow this has got to resolve in a, a relatively happy way, but we're going to need a real uh, synoptic resolution. We're on the level of synopsis here, but we, <laughs> we're definitely talking uh, an upbeat ending to a harrowing story in a small space of time. So a lot on the line there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it. Resolutions happy. Something that genuinely scares me as a new parent in the tradition of evil children's stories, such as village of the damned children of the corn. I got it. Okay. Okay. Outstanding. All right. So last time that we spoke about the new paradigm, which I think is very helpful. uh, Every week, a lot happens. You and I text back and forth, not infrequently sharing articles with each other about uh, various crazy people and crazy stories. Yeah. Uh, You had mentioned that focusing on time, which is where we got to last time, might be where you wanted to start this time. I think just to recap, we we are involved in sort of mapping the new paradigm, the sense that which many, many people have. I think it's an underlying theme within uh, popular culture at large that we're somehow on the edge of a, of a new, fairly broad-ranging, deep cultural paradigm. And there are many, many different hints of this, many different possible approaches sort of all vying for attention. I mean, if you were running a kind of stock market idea of, uh, you know, different possibilities for how this might be configured or key you know influences it's changing all the time and there are a lot of different ways of thinking about it but so far we've introduced three and one of them was the nature of time that somehow we're going to have to get a new idea of both psychic personal time interior secret time which is only really accessible to the world through our behavior, our paying of bills, our answering the phone. Uh, but more, more importantly, I think our sense of social time, social media time, media time in the terms of the 24-7 cycle, work time, uh, the tempo, the deep tempo from how we formulate thoughts, what constitutes reasonable sentences and exchanges of information, how those time frames are, are managed, all the way up to you know a bigger sense of, well, how long do we really think humans are going to be around, you know, uh, and what's good? Are we going to uh, morph into some sort of cybertronic 
uh, presence? Have we done so already? So I think time is, is one of the big things that we're talking about. And so I was looking around and I rediscovered that I have um, two full, maybe more, three full years of the uh, Lapham's Quarterly, which is just a sensational publication by uh, run by Lewis Lapham, who is also a very fine essayist, as most anybody who knows his name will know. He's just a really great writer. And he, he has an essay that introduces each themed issue. But this one is on time. And I found there's just, I mean, it's just so rich and stuff. Almost every page I've got something underlined or, you know, there's a lot to go through. And we might be able to, you know, look at this over a few episodes because I think time is just so important. Um, But out of all of the different angles, I found three that I thought really kind of chimed in, so to speak with what we've been talking about. And they touch on some issues that you raised uh, both a long time ago in the series and about sort of midway, creeping in in different points. So I thought what I might do is just run past you these three, which build in complexity. Uh, the third one is, is, is extremely rich. But just to, um, to throw out some quotations from this issue on time and hear your response to it um, because there's just a lot of the first one is entirely informational and yet nonetheless it uh i don't know it, it kind of surprised me a little bit i was pleased to know it but here it is around 1345 the division of hours into 60 minutes and of minutes into 60 seconds became common. I thought that was very interesting. I didn't know that. I think that we often talk about sort of the Middle Ages with very in very derogatory terms. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason for that at all, because there's an immense amount of stuff that is happening. Coincidentally with this, it is about that same time that for the very first time, people who are capable of reading and have material to read are able to read without reading aloud. Mm. Now that's, I've, I've, I've had that verified from a couple of different sources that people we admire. Uh, Edward T. Hall is one of them. Gaston Bachelard is another. I think those are interesting things going on. So if we say, well, those are those kind of, you know, like some sort of dark age or something. Well, I'm not sure it's really, that's true at all. I think some big changes in consciousness. But were you surprised to, to learn that 1365 was the first time that we get that sense of the the core units of the hour, the minute and the second. I was surprised because that's something that I haven't given a lot of thought. It's a very lost explorer's question to say, well, when, when did we decide that 60 seconds was an hour? That's a question that Gus is going to ask eventually. When I'm explaining time to him, he's going to say, but why? Yeah. Say, well, in 1365, it was decided. I have to imagine there was almost murderous knockdown 
drag out fights about how long this should be. The 50 second, excuse me, the 50 second crowd versus the 60 second crowd. Yes. Somebody got their throat cut over that. I guarantee you. I mean, that's exactly it's, yeah. you know, this is the story behind the story, a mass sociological phenomenon to get that level of consensus. I think that's very insightful. Yeah, because if you think about not just, you know, Giordano Bruno being burned alive in the field of flowers for, you know, believing that there were galaxies other than our own. Uh, we all know the controversies over the sun all the way up till today how mad people can get about seemingly the most innocuous things, whether it's football teams or religions that are completely interchangeable to an outsider, except for one thing, you have to imagine that time in general, I mean, this is interesting because uh, this seems to me to perhaps be one of the, one of the first in, in history, the first fights for time, which we're in again, in a sense, because I think that we're now dealing with a third party when it comes to time. I think that's very interesting to use a very simple term of fight, because I think that is exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not a debate. It's it, it. Of course, there are debates, but underlying it is really a, a fight about a point of view and a perspective. And most importantly, I think the a standard, you know, a crucial grammar. This is what I mean when I use the term of deep grammars, Mm -hmm. those kind of of absolutely fundamental algorithms that then build or form the foundation for a whole range of other things. And and they repeat and insinuate themselves through language, you know, all the time, minute, moment, you know, and it just behind it all really is... um, Some very, very, you know, deep strategic questions. Uh, and I think this is another, you know, we, we say about the problem with presentism and not just with millennials and Gen Z, but everyone's kind of, you know, forgotten everything, you know, mm-hmm. about where these things come from and the calendar and the the basic grammars of of organizing time is a remarkable struggle. I mean, if if you were to re-engage that fight sense and come up with an all, you know, what would you know to think of an alternative, it would be inconceivably difficult to mm-hmm. really forge ahead with that through all of, I mean, look at all of the years in the US has still not gone to the metric system you know, by analogy, Mm -hmm. it's that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that in mind, I then want to sort of jump forward in time to a writer or thinker that we mentioned in the psychic defense manual. He should be thought of for, for many reasons, but the historian Lewis Mumford, who I think is Mm. amongst many great books, has really written uh, a vital, vital uh, resource about the nature and history of the city, of what a city means, and the the organizational idea of that. And I think that, again, is part of a a contribution to understanding some deep grammars within culture. But 
and he and, 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 and he has a kind of writing style which I find uh he's like uh Charles Fort's more prim and proper uh older brother in a way <laughs> I don't I don't know if other people will see that but he names the clock not the steam engine or the printing press as the key machine of the modern industrial age, a piece of power machinery whose product is seconds and minutes. By its essential nature, it dissociated time from human events. Let me read that last part again, because I think it's, this is an example of someone who, you know, we're really, uh, the thinking and the writing are, are, are one, you know, you mm -hmm. can't have good ideas and not have good writing in a frame. And this, this is it. By its essential nature, it dissociated time from human events. That's in regard to the clock. And I think that it would be hard to find uh, any of the basic machines and the clocks are, are not on that level. They're, they're up two tiers of sophistication that has been more metaphorically embraced in language. You know, I mean, I look mm -hmm. around and I don't actually have a clock in front of me, but I certainly know what time it is. And I love clocks. Mm -hmm. uh, I love, I, I've got a real Jones for, for wristwatches, but I'm not wearing one, you know, and I got, a, I have one cool one and I've got some, you know, other cheap ones that I think are cool. Um, but what do you think about that, that insight as, as a core element of this modern age that we've been exploring and picking apart? He didn't say it's the only one, but he, he did yeah. say it's it's the principal one. Yeah. My third, third, my first question would be what was, what was time before that? Was it, was it felt, was it more subjective? Because I've been thinking a lot about the subjectivity of time and how it ties into what we what we talked about in our last Lost Explorers, specifically about how when you're online, it's this dream state that doesn't that's worse than a dream because time passes and you don't take anything with you once you're done with it. You you were completely memory wiped after that. So it's been further abstracted by the internet. But I wonder about, you know, once you have the clock. And you have specific times that you need to be there. You know, there's the there's the interesting cultural and racial stereotype about black people not being able to be on time. You ever heard the term colored people time? C CPT? Oh yeah. Well, it ripples yeah. around the world. Island time. Yeah. Island time. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's uh, it's. And so was time was time like that then for everybody before the clock was invented? That would be my first question. Well, I think part of the uh, an interesting uh, part of the answers to that it would have been much more based on actual alertness, right? To movement of the sun. I think anyone working in an agricultural context, 
would have been thinking very much in, you know, from the big calendar of seasonal plantings and, and the whole process of agriculture, you know, Dan, if you were in, in some sort of hunting sort of thing, you'd certainly, I mean, think about the, uh, both the Native American and, and Chinese traditions name the moon uh, phases, you know, the phases and the months after certain um, you know, animal connections or tree mm. connections. So, mm -hmm. and anybody who's involved in uh, being on the water for a living, and just in, I was down on the Colorado uh, mm -hmm. just around New Year's, and it's always different. The river is always changing. I love it. Just does not know how to behave. It's like yeah. a really difficult girlfriend. It will not do what you expect. But I had this sudden, I was looking at the water shimmering and I had the sudden thing that we had talked about not having New Year's resolutions. And I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to say I'm making a resolution because David will catch me out. But I am going to make a commitment to not just this year, but in, for the rest of my life for as a long-term plan of knowing more people who make their living on the water in some way yeah wherever i get a chance i just think that that's that would be cool that's cool but i think your question is is so important to the larger lost explorers mission and to so many of the problems of today particularly with with our emerging generation i'm seeing that with my students uh this semester already of uh, being able to ask that question well what was time like before yeah you know because yeah. implicit in what you're saying and how you phrase that question is a beautiful and fairly organic blending of some sense of physical objective yeah. time in the sense of the sun and the moon and those giant right. astronomical things but but also the personal psychological and the social cultural and it's all comes together in that one question well what, what was the experience of time like and that's the kind of question we have to start asking if we're going to certainly if we're going to prosecute the past for mm -hmm. things we don't like about it you know yeah well, absolutely cool. yeah it's well and it's you know they didn't have just one you know interminable length that they they had beginnings and endings to things, as you said, with the sun, uh, with the seasons. But what I was thinking, the clock, the clock is an interesting development in all of this because it dissociates these real world environmental effects from the 60, you know, 1365, the breaking up of it into 60 seconds. But then <clears throat> I wonder perhaps the next big dissociation is the invention of the airplane and the ability to travel across time zones because everybody has had jet lag when i went to new mexico i went into a new time zone i was in mountain time right. not central time anymore so i lost an hour gained an hour and those are real tangible things because the sun pretty you know pretty reliably sets at 5 30 at this time of year, 536, something like that. And uh, so I wonder, you have the clock with, which dissociates it, then you have the airplane and the car, the ability to travel quickly, 
means that you're traveling through time zones, something that meant might be the wrong word, but wasn't meant to happen, right? People weren't meant to do that. Certainly not meant to get on a 14 hour flight to Tokyo uh, and be in tomorrow, uh, which gave us jet lag, right? So jet lag is a feeling of tiredness, but it also has a kind of weird dissociation to it. And then after that, now we have the internet and all times are on the internet. There is no real, what would you call internet time? I suppose if you're looking at a platform uh, like Twitter or Facebook, people perhaps, if your friend group is largely American, they're going to post less in the middle of the night, but there's no time on the internet, really. You'll find somebody up somebody on the other side of the world is having breakfast and you can know about it now. So it just seems to get increasingly uh, less and less concrete and less and less interested, not interested, less and less reliant, dependent on your environment, on, on the seasons, on the moon. So that's interesting to me too. The clock to the internet, just <laughs> we're getting further and further away from a sundial or, you know, a crop rotation or, you know, phases of the moon. Absolutely. And, and what's also very strange about it is we're really at odds with the enormous paradigm shift that Albert Einstein provided. I mean, I think that the, um, the special theory of relativity, uh, which deals with the speed of light, and the whole notion of simultaneity, which is, is something that he challenged. You know, we've got a real, so when you say internet is, is one time is all time, uh, there's a real problem there because you would think if we've abandoned the sundial and the uh, you know planting seasons and that physicality of and watching the stars and knowing about them you know that connection with physical exterior cosmos that we're getting our clues from that we would at least have kind of kept in play with uh, relativity physics. It's hard to get with quantum physics. I mean, most people really don't get with that. And I'm not sure even some of the people who are behind the, the theories really understand it. But we do understand Einstein's uh, beautiful thought experiments or analogies regarding, you know, two passengers, two perspectives on a train mm -hmm. and, and watching, you know, a flash of lightning. So that is a really sort of difficult question. The whole thing about time zones is though is absolutely fascinating. And talk about a bizarre history of social contract and transactions and agreements. I mean, it is completely strange. And then if you actually pick up a globe, you know, and start looking around at how, I mean, compare the, you know, yeah, the equator is an idea. Okay, you could say that's constructed, but no, it's not. It it mm -hmm. it's inherent in in it was discovered. Yeah. yeah, it it's there. And if you've ever you know passed sailed 
on the equator and over the equator, it's psychologically, you know, you don't have to be told there's something going on with that. But then you look at these international times and you think, I mean, you have no idea. If you're out in the middle of, of the Pacific, that doesn't make any sense at all. And even the time zones in America, the you know, for from a railroad point of view, which is, I think, kind of how that originally got put into play, it's completely bizarre. I could just drive around the corner, really, and be in Arizona. And, you know, my uh, my phone changes time. My car doesn't. You know, the mm-hmm. clock there stays the same. So yeah. it's very, very weird. But underlying, I think, is an ongoing fight to use that good word, good, simple word you started us with, of some belief in objective terms, geographic, cosmological, astronomical, meteorological, you know, those kinds of terms versus the social contract versions yeah yeah and what i think these inventions or discoveries in the case of the equator we could say discoveries in the case of clock time too it's it has seemed to work pretty well for the past oh i don't know 700 years or so i think that what we're getting at that's so interesting is that we're almost saying that we've moved we keep moving in a certain direction and that direction is one in which we get the the rush the rush of thought the rush of perception and the chemical dopamine adrenaline serotonin we get all those rushes without what our biology has programmed us to associate with physicality and embodiment within a space and perhaps that is creating the sense of disorientation that we've been talking about. I think that's uh, that's very well said, and it reminds me of H.G. Uh, Wells. Uh, one of his better, uh, one of the better parts, I think, of uh, the time travel, of just the, of the disease of time traveling, the side effects of it, you know. And I mm-hmm. think that there is, you know, an argument for describing the epidemic of, of new mental illness of our time, in part because of this time displacement. You know, that's a reasonable yeah. 4K Dick kind of theme, you know. Just making okay, well, do you have anything more? Because now I want to lay on you what I think is a really... Um, it's an extension of, of, of these points. There's obviously uh, a theme in mind here. Um, oh, one, one other just quick thing that, that it's, um, I think Ver, Jules Verne and the whole uh, around the world in 80 days, which hinges on, I mean, the big plot element there is uh, time zone differences. The mm-hmm. line. Mm-hmm. And I think it is worth, uh, I mean, we could really look at um, a great literature class, both high literature and and pop stuff that deals with the time element. And I don't mean just within in a suspense thing. I mean, just on the notion of how time is defined, how people 
people's awareness of time changes the nature of the story. Um, but I'll preface this uh, quotation for your response um, because I also want to get some feedback from you on Mike about uh, we were talking last time about Mercury retrograde. Mm -hmm. And I've wanted to ask you about that because um, I want to know more, but I, I'm finding I, every time that comes up, I'm finding that there's more resonance in either my life and, and people I directly know. So mm -hmm. I want to know something more of your thoughts on the mechanics of that. But here is a really, really big quotation that I think uh, just is one of the cornerstones of the modern Western world mind. And Johannes Kepler is the, I mean, a genius mathematician, astronomer, uh, one of the a writer of one of the earliest science fiction uh, mm -hmm. stories, mm -hmm. Kepler's Dreams, quite an interesting uh, work of literature. But he has the chops and the cred to make this observation and to have had it really, really had impact. I think you'd have to put this up with some of the thoughts of Galileo and Newton. He says, the celestial machine is to be likened not to a divine organism, but rather to a clockwork. Mm -hmm. And I just, I can't, in my mind, that the importance of that, every single word, mm -hmm. is so important to the history of of. Well, world civilization, not just Western civilization, since 1605. That comes from 1605. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on that as an absolutely, my, my claim is it's an absolutely culture-changing observation? It's really important because a clock doesn't have a whim. You see what I mean? A clock doesn't have a telos to it, telos. Yes. And if a clock doesn't have that, and therefore the celestial beings also don't have that, that puts into the mind the idea of, you know, the trains running on time, that there's an immutable schedule that cannot be messed with. These things happen. It's very deterministic. These planets are going to move in the way that they move, and the sun is going to move in the way that it moves in a mechanistic way. It, of course, also would, you know, down the line lead to Descartes thinking about people in this way. Uh, and as with any cool new idea, the human tendency is to try to figure out the worst way that we can implement that into, you know, materialism. <laughs> but uh, but the the initial thing, besides being a, a beautiful piece of translated writing, uh, I think that that notion in particular is is killing a lot of gods and heroes from mythology. Right? It's taking the agency out of these things that happen right no the 
the volcano is not exploding because a god is angry in the earth. It's a complex clock with a lot of you know variables that we don't understand, but it's clockwork. The lava comes out of there, it does its thing. The move even the movements of animals, the movements of, of herds, it would change the perception of that from they're moving because they want something to, well, they're moving because it's yeah. just kind of what they do. And they're effectively being moved. They're being moved. Yeah. Yeah. Very, uh, very deterministic. Um, there, I think that human, there are, there's this particular type of human being who takes solace in that, in everything not being chaos, in things having a deterministic quality to them. Even if we can't extrapolate from all that, that our lives are going to turn out a certain way. It's comforting, I think, to think of the universe in that way. And by the way, when we're talking about celestial bodies, that's true. You know, that's not really something that can be debated. It's the the human the natural human inclination to imply from that other things and to structure the way one sees the world that in that manner. Yes. There are a couple of um I, I like how you, you you made an important point, which um really does need to be said in this case. Uh, and not just assumed that this is a, a translated writing, and and that's true. Um, and it's one of it's the, it's the leading uh, authority on Kepler, and so the wording of that is is very precise. And I think we can take it to being as close to the original as absolutely possible. And there is a kind of strange thing going on there, where. In addition to, I mean, Kepler's a mathematician and knows that he's one of the leading lights of his time. So there is a kind of arrogance inherent in this. There's a huge inductive leap that I have worked out about elliptical orbits and worked out the system. And, you know, and you know, remember that famous woodcut of that figure, you know, sticking its head through his head through the the rainbow and the, to the stars the machine yes 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 i love that i love yeah, that yeah very very faint beautiful beautiful well that is exactly what what kepler's on about and is mm -hmm. it is self-conscious about that and there are these luminous figures in science and i think galileo kepler and newton or are, are sort of a, a crucial triad there but that phrasing of a divine organism when he's already said the celestial machine this is rhetorically loaded and it is about eliminating the need for a god to be winding it's mm, working mm -hmm. on that premise but it absolutely eliminates the gods and spirits and a lot of this organic chaos that you refer to it it doesn't do that by implication it doesn't do that as a consequence it does that intentionally mm -hmm. that's its goal it's mm -hmm. his personal psychology it's the sociology of the set that he's in and he's mm -hmm. speaking on their behalf or is uh the emblematic leader of that point of view, but directly, 
directly making a comment about cultural paradigm there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No more gods. We're going machine. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you said that there, there's not nothing winding it. It's interesting to think about it from the perspective of something wound it, but it's gone now, right? <laughs> it wound it up and then it walked away to go make other stuff. There are these, there's a science fiction comic book called Blam, where it's based on Earth 5,000 years or something in the future. And Earth has become the size of Jupiter because these von Neumann style builder robots just keep expanding out and out and out. The artist who created it went to architecture school. And so there are these great splash panels of impossible architecture that these characters are walking through they've never seen the sun they have no idea what the sun is but i yeah i like this idea of the builders as these mindless automatons that just get set in motion and go out and start making stuff and they don't stop it it just keeps going and going and going and going i do like that yeah but uh and that's sort of you know i'm not sure if this would, would have been kepler's leap necessarily but those are your two options with that worldview that nothing has ever been winding it, which is interesting to me, right? That there's all of this order. And then the implication is, is that, well, I suppose in a lot of mythology, there's chaos before that, but the implication would be that there's that chaos is now gone, not gone, but largely taken care of these things wind themselves up so nothing is chaos then. Even random circumstance in your day-to-day life, it's all been wound up. You're just on for the ride. You might as well be watching. Ooh, you might as well be on the internet, scrolling Twitter. Hey, yeah. how about that? Yeah. For, yeah. For a, I mean. Yeah. You know. Well, clock. You know, like hands on the clock, everything comes around, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you yeah. think it's uh, of significance? Mm-hmm. Uh, to read that remark or that that assertion of Kepler's in in light of um, well social history of the time, mm. for instance, I mean I think that 1605. Uh, you have to think that clocks, and I think yeah. certainly what what Kepler is talking about. He's he's thinking of it obviously metaphorically, of course, but not not so much. But the any physical actual clocks of that time, I think, would have been very high end technology that would have only really been available to the elite social class royalty. You know the aristocrats. I don't think your average you know peasant would have really, you know, had a clock available. Unless uh, there's a, you know, a bell tower or something like that. That's, well, I that's, think that's exactly, you know, why, you know, why were there bell towers? Well, for that reason, yeah. you know, absolutely. And, but I think that still changes the relationship to, uh, you know, to the idea of a clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that that chiming, interestingly, where I am up on uh, Red Mountain, um, it's there are vagaries of sound 
that I really appreciate, quite mysterious and haunted. The, the coyotes, sometimes the wind, the way the wind works. But the other day I heard, and I don't know how it's possible, the Boulder Dam Hotel in town has a beautiful hourly chime. It's just lovely. You know, sometimes they can be annoying but or ominous. This is just <laughs> perfect. And I heard it, and uh, one of my neighbors was walking past. And we, we thought... Do we know? I said, do you normally hit? I said, I don't think that's possible. I don't actually think it's because we would hear it all the time. So that's the weirdest damn thing. I, <laughs> I, I, I You can tell it is the, the Boulder Dam because of the, of the nature of the chime. There's something very right. distinct about it. But I think you're right that, that the, the clock tower, and then think about what clock towers would have been associated with churches and civic, major civic buildings. Mm. Um, so they're really structurally central to the notion of social life and, yeah. and not every village would have one or, or that might be a defining element of what makes a village of significant, you know, it could be then on the map. Well, be, why? Because it has a clock tower or some of some yeah. kind. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that, that that remark in 1605 would have had a very different resonance than it does to us today. I think we have to go through that exercise of thinking yeah. about, well, what do people think of clocks then? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. did they have any idea? Of, uh, I mean, in one sense, the clock makers were talk about a genius priest cast of, of magicians there was something mystical about them. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And that's that's something that I wanted to jump in really quick because this was top of mind. The clock tower seems to me to also be a very effective mechanism, a subtle, well, a subtle mechanism perhaps of social control as well, because of the implication of there being this mystical clockmaker cast behind it. So every time you see it, whether it's explicit or implicit, you're you're being reminded of the not just the makers, but the mechanisms behind it, right? Of the fact that there's, you know, once there's time, there's a time limit. And that changes everything. Well, it does totally. I mean, and I think it starts off on a kind of uh as we've said in, across many, many subject areas of there's a sacred element of, yeah. well, for instance, church services, sort of working down to the secular sort of level. And that seems to be a pattern across culture that we start off in the world of magic and gods and a god, uh, maybe the Christian god. Um, but we, not too, it doesn't take too long to, uh, to work our way into um a world of degraded commodified time and mm. i think that um it's worth just remembering i hadn't thought of this guy for a while he's i think someone who really we need to talk about frederick w taylor who is the author of the principles of scientific management he is the first sort of time and motion uh fanatic and he really gives us the notion of the clock as in 
punching in and punching it from the worker point of view and work efficiency and the industrialization process turning people into cogs, you know, and wheels. And I think that that, that sense of time going from something quite, well, earthy and starry, you know, both, um, something that also connected to the animal world, but certainly the whole planting, vegetable, agricultural world, down to the factory. I mean, could you have a factory in any modern sense, you know, like starting, you know, in, in the mid, early to mid 19th century, when things get really rolling without a clock, without a clock running the system, it wouldn't work, would it? No, it wouldn't work. It would, because you would need, the purpose of having the time in a factory is to meet a certain quota of work. And I would think that quotas more than likely existed on a day-to-day basis, but that's not a very efficient way to make a product <laughs> at the end of the day, right? Because you're going you're gonna to have people, you know, goofing off for, for most of the day. So it was definitely more restricted and regimented, I'd have to think. It isn't an interesting, you know, I, what's, I can't remember the name of... Uh... He's a contemporary filmmaker, documentary filmmaker. It's stuff up on Amazon Prime. But he does some very straightforward looks at major manufacturing facilities. There's one, um, it's uh, in China, uh, probably in Guangdong, uh, where it's just this, you know, this enormous airplane hangar that goes on and on and on in one sustained shot. And it's quite a piece of film. It, it, it was done with a dolly, you know, and, and uh, maybe some drone help too. But just thousands of workers working on this clock-like basis. Yeah. And it's terrifying. It's quietly yeah. terrifying. Yeah, I will go down rabbit holes on Instagram. This is the only... Instagram knows what I like now. And because of the proliferation of the iPhone and and everybody can take a video. Now there are tons of videos of people in everywhere from third world countries to China, to America doing manual labor. And some of these Chinese videos of these guys on an assembly, there's one with an assembly line and a truck and there are sandbags coming down the assembly line. I don't think the videos sped up. I think it's just that fast. And this guy's, you know, one after the other, boom, he must have done a hundred bags in a two minute video or something like incredibly fast. Right. Um, but I think that the industrialization aspect of it, yeah, it all stems from this idea, doesn't it? It's all, it's all this idea of how much can we fit into time? Because once time has a shape, now you try to start poking around and seeing what you can fit into it. We used to think in terms of crop cycles, seasons, long lengths of time, and now it's down to 60 seconds. What, what can you do in 60 seconds? The clock's ticking. Yeah. That's well, fascinating, I, though. I, I think that, you know, the other, there are so many ways that, that, that the clock 
does impinge on contemporary culture. It also does in sports and right. any kind of sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. But I think it really is very odd about this industrial age sense of time when people were were, were really working. And I think we I think these documentaries that show conditions in other parts of the world, it I think Americans, for instance, get shocked by that because they they see these people, frankly, actually working. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're not seeing so much of that. I mean, we're 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 more afraid of unemployment. We're afraid of of robots working in factories. We're not so much thinking about. Um, well, I mean, none of the young people, as in uh, the Gen Z students, have have really done much physical uh, work that I've had in the last two years. I mean, they're they're not, you know, doing this. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not, you know, the, even the, the guys aren't aren't working for like a moving company. You know, you think, well, look, if you're 18 and and maybe a bit husky, you know, I think you should be throwing some furniture around, or you know, like I did. <laughs> well, you know, like yeah, like we all did. I mean, like whoa, you know, that used to be kind of. Um, I'm glad I did that job. I'm glad I did that job. That gave me such a sense of masculine bonding with guys who were from a different, yeah, social makeup than I was because I was, you know, more of a skater. Uh, I'm a, I'm a skinnier guy but event you know you work there for two weeks and you bulk up a little bit and you can actually lift heavy things and these guys are just corn fed guy from the day that they were able to walk they were they were working on their dad's farm but uh i've cherished that just you know getting absolutely drunk the night before and going out in 105 degree oklahoma heat to take a a vanity set up three flights of stairs. That's, you're not you're not hung over anymore. They no. you sweat that out. It's gone. That's the discipline that yeah. Uh my uh, one of my good friends in high school who's uh, f- uh father and brother owned a soft water company, you know, because of of all the uh uh just the hard water. Uh and the way you you end up sort of you know cleaning people's filters you replace it with with salt and and, and sand and then mm-hmm. you haul that other you know the used shit back and you mm-hmm. put it in these giant tanks and his dad would get us you know in the tank scrubbing you know fucking hard work when we were really hung over and he knew that mm-hmm. but that is a great part of bonding and it, it mm-hmm. it's i know i can see that's an important part of your character your life story your connection with characters and fits into your writing view it's one mm-hmm. of the reasons why i think there were so really many great male writers that came up through in america particularly came up through the 30s you think of steinbeck uh i mean real stories of work and mm-hmm. going back to 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 Whitman's, you know, Song of Occupations, there's a real pride and and vigor in in the physicality of work, which we've lost entirely. And yet, this sense of the uh, well, the, the 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 term "time poor," you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. think, well, wait a minute, how does that? Aren't we surrounded by? time and labor saving devices more than we can possibly imagine what happened what happened why can we be time poor you know and nobody's you know digging 
I mean, digging fence posts, there is, you know, that's, that's hard work. You can't get anyone to do that. And it's, have you ever used a post hole digger? Yeah, it's, it's, it's brutal. My back just wins just (laughs) thinking about it. Yeah, no, we used to show up to the shop at eight o'clock. That was the time, time to start. But really, whenever you got done is when you got done. I remember the days when we would come in and there would only be four deliveries to make. It was usually not four deliveries. It was more like 12, sometimes 15. But we would go to the office and we'd get out this big paper, laminated paper book with maps of the Oklahoma City metro area. So you had Oklahoma City. To the south, you had Norman. To the far east, you had Choctaw. To the far west, you had El Reno. And way up north, you had Guthrie. And the deliveries were all over there. So we'd plot out our route because you want to make a circle. And we would have debates about what the best route would be. We'd say, well, this if we hit this first, right after rush hour, we can get all the inner city ones. And then we can go down to Norman and scoop up and around. And we would have to call customers on the phone. And ask them what their two major cross streets were. Well, why is that? Says the generation that has Google Maps. Because we didn't have Google, like we didn't have a map on our yeah, phone to tell yeah, us where everything yeah. was. So we'd see the address in the back of the book. There was a uh, a sort of a direction, uh, uh, like a phone book. Basically, it's a directory of all the different streets, and it would have a grid number on it. And so we would turn to it, see the grid, but sometimes the grid wasn't you know, it wasn't very detailed. So we'd call them up and ask them what their cross streets were. And that would help us to find the proper place where this, this address was. Um, I just went down memory lane there because it feels to oh, me like great. such a, it feels to me like such a, this was in 2007, 2008, not very long ago. Right. But all these time that brings me basically to this idea of the time saving device, which is the biggest scam that has ever been perpetrated on the human race. Oh. It's not a time saving device, it's a time suck, right? It only gives you tools if it feels like that extra time that you're saving, it can use that it can steal back from you. So, of course, it wants to save you time looking up things on a map. Because that's more time than you can spend on Twitter or Instagram looking at advertisements. It's really insidious stuff, the way Which, the time's been As we've said, and you've pointed out, those latter two practices are all about stepping out of time. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, porn time or casino time. You know, it's, it's, it completely disassociates. There's no clocks in casinos on the floor. No. Absolutely not. You know, that's, and there's a, there's a reason for that. You know, that's not accident. I think that that, that sense of dissociation, uh, which is a direct, uh, not a consequence again, I think it is the, it's implicit in the notion of time saving device. Right. Right. It's yeah. Yeah. Time saving. It's, you know, (laughs) <laughs> time-saving device is like two weeks to stop the spread. It's just something that people say. It, it doesn't really mean anything, especially not what it claims to me. It's almost Orwellian, isn't it? This is your new time-saving device. That feels like something that would be put in there. And it's like, well, this is weird because I spend 
seven and a half hours a day on it. I spend a third of my day on this thing. It's like, but it's saving you a lot of time. Okay. So don't, don't question the fact that it also takes that. No, it's a time, it's a time stealing device, right? Like we're actually not in an era anymore of, uh, of quote unquote, wasting time, right? Wasting time is when you don't know what you're doing and you start on a project. Well, even that's not really wasting time because you're figuring stuff out. You're in the world. That's cool. But we're, I guess you could say we do waste time, but I think it's more important to put a kind of sinister uh, uh, goal with that. I think, I think it's good to look at this thing Oh, that's a Gus picture on my phone. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think it's I think it's better to look at that thing as a sinister, demonic device, a vampire. Think of it as a vampire. It's there to suck all the time away. There's going to be a whole generation of people who are my age and younger who are going to get to their deathbeds and feel like their whole life was stolen from them. And then it's going to be too late. I can see that in progress. I really can. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I think that has enormous cultural ramifications uh, because it's definitely true that it is, it, it's crossing two generations now. And I mm-hmm. think the force of that, that shift, I mean, this is really part of, of what the, this new paradigm could be. And as we said, when we started really focusing on this, that new paradigm sounds exciting and, and terrific. Like it's something we're kind of forging and building, <laughs> but it, it may not be, it may be out of our control and it may be something we really don't want to deal with. And I think there are many examples of this from, you know, an ongoing sense of pandemic anxiety to mm-hmm. climate, you know, anxiety constantly, you can't sort of get past to this sense of, of, of time and any sort of, of dealing with time is, a source of anxiety unless you mm-hmm. have this immediate channel of you know one of these avenues of escape from it you know whether it be social media or streaming or anytime you can just get away from time then you're okay you know mm-hmm. and isn't it interesting based off of what we were talking about earlier about how there's this rush of you know chemicals and thoughts without the physicality that's kind of what time has been turned into this clicked for me when you said that time causes anxiety and it might be the initial initial instance of this particular type of anxiety with no physicality because before time people there was a period of time where people didn't know that they were going to die they knew that other people died but they didn't know that they were going to die the only time that they would get these rushes of, you know, adrenaline, et cetera, was when they were in actual physical danger. They saw the bushes rustling. Who's behind those bushes? I better check that out. Then the invention of time created a, an externalized, uh, uh, an externalized mechanism for anxiety production, right? And anxiety equals control because when you're scared and anxious all the time you are you're not you're not in the moment you're not you're not in your physical space right so the invention of the clock not only put people into this mind of 
having a mechanistic deterministic. So don't try to move up into a different social caste because there's no point to it. Everything's already determined, but it also, it created, like, did the third man, did he come into being in 1365 when time was split up like this? Was that when, was that when he was, was that the, the Lynchian, Los Alamos explosion yeah, that we're yeah. talking about. Well, I I'm I think that's a beautiful beautiful connection because it, it looks very suspicious, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. that is certainly a crack that is big enough. I mean, the third man is, is sneaky. It's a ghostly sort of presence. It that's when it could have slipped in. You know, yeah, he could have yeah. really you know crept into the whole mix then and a lot of things start happening a lot of fun I mean, you know the printing press and and McLuhan does a, his I think his best book is is the Gutenberg galaxy about how the printed word you know just managed just crunch through a gate a very narrow gateway all this oral literature magic and chaos and mm-hmm. these are really defining protocols that put a lot of structure into play relatively, you know, in in a relatively short amount of historical time. And they really reinforce the notion of historical time being a certain kind, you know? Mm -hmm. And it suddenly doesn't have, uh, I don't know if it has a machine-like quality exactly, but it certainly steps away from the human sacred ceremonial time because i was thinking you know with with the flattening of the gods the divine organism the 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 divine mysterious chaotic elements and we're going to the industrial factory we're, we're moving towards that paradigm what also gets kind of uh well certainly degraded are all the human ceremonial notions of of managing time Mm-hmm. You know, I think about the, uh, you know, the whole, uh, well, all of Hispanic Latino culture would, would apply, but think of just Mexico and all of the festivals, you know, festivals are just the whole calendar is, is rich with them. Oh, you yes. Know, there is this real sense of, you know, mm-hmm. doing festival well. Now, that's a beautiful kind of clock isn't it mm. it's a lot more colorful and sensory and feast human. days feast days for saints yeah if you ever look at a catholic feast day calendar yeah there's a bunch of them and i'm yeah i'm here and i like what you're saying too about that these these markers of time number one they are still more split up than 60 seconds per minute 60 minutes per hour 24 hours per day there's but what you're bringing up that's so important is that time is marked by celebration with yeah. your tribe, with your people. Yeah. Which is totally and, and, different. And sociality becomes synonymous with, with celebration. And mm-hmm. it's not, I mean, no one's pretending that there weren't disputes and other, and there weren't wars and fighting and all sorts of other aspects of socialization. But the foremost thing is that kind of, festival ceremonial celebration of of togetherness Mm -hmm. uh, that that ends up being i mean it's it's when it's on the other side of the clock and industrial development that you start getting the lonely crowd 
the yeah. isolation experience, alienation of, of, you know, of a group. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I wonder sometimes about the whole notion of, well, we're, what was being in a crowd like before this invention of, of, of clock time? Mm-hmm. And how big, you know, were crowds defined differently? Maybe they weren't alienating. Maybe they, maybe they weren't, for starters, maybe they weren't so big. Mm-hmm. But if, mm-hmm. if they were big, maybe it was more that sensory sort of uh, overload of, of marketplaces, you know, mm-hmm. Cairo, mm-hmm. Marrakesh, you know, this crazy noise, color, smell, it's kind of a carnival, you know? Yeah. Which Tokyo reminds that? me of that. Yeah. When I see, when I see people, you know, in, well, Tokyo is known for having, you know, the lugubrious salarymen archetype of, of alienation. They've gotten it really bad too, but some of the more fun districts take on that, that aspect. I think our modern version of that, when I used to, since we're going back through all of David's jobs tonight, when I worked on Campus Corner for uh, the University of Oklahoma at a hot dog restaurant selling oh, beer I, hot dogs. Oh, I love the hot dog stories. Yeah. yeah Those were yeah. some of the first I heard of you. What was yeah. the name of the venue? Uh, Diamond Dogs. Okay. That's okay. That's yeah. what I thought. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> great album too, but pretty decent hot dogs as well. But the uh, game nights or game days were crowds like that where everybody shows up to the street wearing the same color rooting for the same team Mm. eating the same food and you'd see people who have never met each other shouting salutations from across the street you know hey let's go boomer and then across the street they would go sooner boomer sooner and everybody was just in a great mood at the end of the night People were always fighting. Somebody would fight with somebody else, but nobody ever got carried away in an ambulance. They might get arrested, but they didn't get hurt, hurt. And it was a real, there are people, people are so grim and so grumpy because a lot of people would look at that. And uh, I know I certainly did when I was overworked and, you know, tired of making fucking hot dogs all day, but you some people might look at that and think like, oh, that's awful. That to me just seems like a lot of fun. Last time Rios and I were in Dallas, we uh we went down to the district and we've aged out of this. That was the only hang up that we had is that a lot of the people on these types of strips were much younger than us. <laughs> but we went we went out, we had some drinks, we had fun. There were other, there were some other olds there. Uh, or we should just say like maybe not in their twenties people, but I like that kind kind of environment. It's fun for me. It's a little chaotic. You never know what anybody, you see a group of dudes with their button down shirts open and their chests out and a cowboy hat on, and they're talking loud enough for everybody on the street full of loud music to hear them. It's exciting. It's fun. I understand what you're saying. And, uh, you know, Australia as a nation was really built on that, their kind of interpretation of that culture and and pub culture i think really meant that kind of open 
social interchange that was generally seen to be very positive and therapeutic, even if it occasionally did break out into pretty managed violence. And yeah. then it crossed the line. I think it, it, it's, it, it has all of this. I mean, I know a lot of people. I mean, I think your typical NPR listener would be horrified by your glorification of it. And I don't think you glorified it, but they would, they would, they would hear that. And they wouldn't see anything good in that. And they would think of prime, well, they would think in terms of toxic masculinity. That would come up very quickly. Um, they would jump ahead to gun culture and to all sorts of terrible dramatic scenarios. And they wouldn't know what to do with when they would be handed, say, a James Brown. Uh, song lyrics or rap because that gets into maybe other racial cultural mm -hmm. ideas and things mm -hmm. that might not be so easy for them to negotiate but they'd very easily dismiss what you're talking about as something that was always sick and there's no sense in being nostalgic for it but i know exactly what you're talking about and i think that you'd agree there is a there was a, a kind of a spectrum of of you know behavior that was out of line mm -hmm. But that mm -hmm. was the standard. That was yeah. a place, an arena where those kinds of behaviors got examined. And you you didn't pinch this girl's ass, but you maybe you could make a certain kind of joke or there were certain things you could do and certain things you, you couldn't do. And, and how you found out was maybe getting knocked on your butt, you know? That might have been, but you wouldn't get a, you know. People you remember the picture of me with the big black eye? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. What year <laughs> was that? I remember that. But you... That must have been 2011 or 12. You know what I remember too, though, about this post? And I know I'm right. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that part of the caption mm -hmm. with this photograph was uh, your real concern was what Rios had to say to you about mm -hmm. it and her mm -hmm. lack of patience, you know, mm -hmm. you for getting mm -hmm. into that fight. And that was like a beautiful, you know, country sort of song lyric sort of thing. And mm -hmm. it's the way a lot of, you know, the world, you know, culture was going. And now we've lost that sense of, I hate to say playfulness in that. What, what, what defined that world from where it's gotten to or where it could get to at its worst. There was something about mm. what you're saying that I think is kind of healthy in terms of mm -hmm. uh, fighting, having disputes, but also sharing and enjoying. Mm -hmm. And then now I, I, I know a lot of uh, young people who that's exactly what they're afraid of. They've been taught to be afraid of that culture and they are. It's a matter of being willing. It's it's the time in an otherwise largely structured life where you roll the dice. It's gambling. And I think that in our era of, uh, to use the J.G. Ballard phrase, and also the name of my friend Adam's very good newsletter, in like the age of safety propaganda, uh, I think that the that people like you said have been taught to stay inside and to look at something like that and just think like oh god too dangerous not for me when it's really not 
it's not that dangerous, especially if you're a guy. But I saw a lot of girls out there who would get into it too. I knew girls who would fight more than the guys, you know? And it's just, it's a willingness to get a few beers inside of you. And by a few, I could mean two, I could mean 10. Depends on the night. Depends on how salty you're feeling. And to just go out there and you really do feel like anything could happen. And I think that's the appeal of it. I think at the, at, at the bottom line, the uh, the feeling of possibility is what's so fun. Everybody's cutting loose and nobody knows where the night's going to go. You have a general idea. We'll be around here. We'll go here. We'll go here. It usually ended in, you know, the strip club or something like that. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> it's a good but, place to lose memory for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember one time I saw a pregnant stripper. That was crazy. But, you know. There was a night, there was one night where a buddy of mine got a hold of a fire height, a, a fire extinguisher and walked into the middle of the street and sprayed the fire extinguisher at oncoming traffic. And there were some nights where we'd go around, you know, kind of tagging walls. And, you know, there were some nights where we'd get kicked out of places. There were some nights where we'd make new friends. You just never knew. You'd say to somebody, "Hey, we're going to go out." So, what is the difference between then and today? Today, I mean, look at look at people. Everybody's just everybody's scared of everything. People are scared of conflict of any kind, unless it's mediated by Twitter and you can hide behind a an avatar of Scooby Doo or whatever. And uh, you know, people have been taught that the most important thing in life is prolonging it, and it's not. Well, that's another aspect. I'm 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 coming to uh, a very um, relatively stable conclusion that we're going to have to keep looking at this aspect of time as being the the core element of what a new paradigm might be. And I'm particularly interested in uh, your thoughts on uh, mortality and lifespans and i think that can be looked at from sort of multiple points of view uh not the least of which is is a really a a socioeconomic one of of how uh mortality might relate to uh wealth and and prestige in in society um but i wanted to get back one sort of final quotation to sort of round up this sort of the cosmological starting point for time because i and i think that's a reasonable and logical place to begin because it cuts back to some of these issues we've been talking about this is from stephen hawking uh and i i think anyone who is familiar with his persona uh just has to admire him tremendously um overcoming a a tremendous disability. I mean, he's almost a brutal sort of emblem of the scientific genius of our more, you know, recent times, this damaged figure who, uh, I mean, he made it onto the Simpsons, you know. Mm -hmm. And yet I think that there are moments, um, and I, I, you know, we're, we're not, really able to assess his uh his scientific importance we have to kind of take some of that for granted 
I would say personally, though, that I think his best-selling book, A Brief History of Time, is one of the uh, most phoned-in efforts of the popular science market. Mm -hmm. And I think he is not the writer that some of his, uh, you know, luminous scientific contemporaries are. And I hate to say it, even uh, Richard Dawkins. Uh, we don't, we're not fans of Dawkins. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I think we actually say he's uh, one of the antagonists of, yeah. of our time. Yep. But he is a better writer than, than Hawking. But nonetheless, this is... Um, I think I think when he's analyzing uh, as a as a kind of literary critic, he he is good, and this is a good quotation to sort of close off this discussion and throw back to you. The motivation for believing in an eternal universe was the desire to avoid invoking divine intervention to create the universe and set it going. So there we come back straight around to the, the, the clock maker, the clock winder. Uh, but I mean, he really explicitly says what Kepler was kind of weaseling around is, we're not thinking of this because it is a beautiful, logical, mathematical thing, or because we're these great minds projecting out. We're actually doing it because we're, we want to eliminate God and gods. That's explicitly mm. the program. Mm -hmm. What do you, how do you respond to that? Do you hear that degree of explicit intention that I do? Oh that? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it's a, it's a very, it's so funny that you just mentioned that he's not the best writer. Uh, and I could think of other ways that you could, you could say that, but <clears throat> I think that that is, there's a term called saying the quiet part out loud, which is Ooh, very like interesting, uh, which is what he's doing there. Interesting that it takes, you know, 350 years to get there before you can finally say the quiet part out loud after a lot of other people, I philosophers. I love that yeah. phrase. Yeah. I get in trouble all the time for saying the quiet part out loud. <laughs> the, the, the thing that you're not, the, the implicit thing that you're not supposed to directly say. Uh, I think that, that is um for next time perhaps it would be interesting to also in addition to talking more about time uh talk about what killing god actually means like what its implication is and what what we sort of mean by god in the first place right like the idea of there being a, a being behind everything some things that i'd like to parse out would be what about uh what's the point in killing god if you're going to replace him with another deterministic mechanism uh is it is it pure human hubris is it sinister uh, uh industrialism right that's that's doing this i think that's that's sort of a big question but that quote gives me uh some things to think about for the next week. i think that's a tremendous uh rope to throw out for next mm -hmm. uh, episode to see where the grappling hook lands but to to look at some examples of of what the what god killing time meant you know mm -hmm. charles ford talked about a steam engine doesn't come around until it's steam engine time somehow it's culturally you know imminent and and, and it, it becomes important at that moment god killing became you know 
we, we can see that throughout. I mean, we went from gods to, to monotheism, and then we definitely have God killing going on in the 19th century. I mean, you don't, you wouldn't have Darwin in a sense uh, without Marx and Nietzsche, you know, I think there's, there's a kind mm-hmm. of reason for that. And then out of that rubble, Freud comes around going, mm-hmm. oh, oh, you know, but I think that's a really interesting, uh, you know, point to, to look at. And, and this issue of Wapnus quarterly has um, some really uh, good points on that. And we might index that just against uh, the episode or the, the issue devoted to death. Mm-hmm. I like throwing these quotations out and getting your response because you always both reinforce my perceptions, but either add on to them or kind of, uh, well, things become more rhythmatic as opposed to arborescent. I'm you glad know? to hear that. That's yeah. a great. That That's, oh, that's so good to hear. That's what I try to do with every conversation <laughs> i'm always yeah. thinking about the rhizome in my new novel the um their version of the internet is called the rhizome for for that reason it's supposed to feel like a mycelial network i like mycelial thinking that's the that's the way that i i, I try to do it so yeah, thanks I think for that right i i think that these well for starters they dimensionalize things they they don't introduce uh, an organic level for the sake of it in a rhetorical sense. They do it quite organically yeah. as it should be, and and it's performance. You know, you can you can see that within the idea. It's not a, an organic metaphor applied to something. You know, we're mm-hmm. not trying to. You know, that's that never works. You can kind of feel when that's not right. It's got to be. It's got to come up through the idea through the language. Mm-hmm to be mm-hmm. uh rhizomatic and organic fundamentally yeah, yeah. No, you do that and i think that's really um I, I just i enjoy that enormously and i think that it 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 then enriches another level of 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 possible thought you know awesome awesome well on that note would you like to hear my children of the corn <laughs> It's evil child time. I am so ready for this. I I look forward to it. All right. So the title of this, there's two potential titles. The first one is either, it's either the revolutionaries or speaking of Marx, Carl the Cuttlefish. All right, here we go. You hooked, I'm hooked. (laughs) This fear... We start, I included three fears by my count in this because for parents, fears are legion. The first fear is the fear of your child developing a neurological disorder. And I came upon this fear because Gus experiences something called baby tremors, which only happens after he naps and is caused by his under, underdeveloped nervous system uh, charging up too quickly, right? So he'll get, after naps, he'll get little shakes. Freaked me out at first until I got Body him checked out. Or, or specific to a limb or? Usually his that... arms, usually okay. his arms, sometimes his legs, and it's not constant. It's not constant. So for example, today we were eating lunch after he woke up from his nap and every once in a while I'd feel a little, a little tremor through his arm, you know, as he was sort of reaching for the fork, for the fork. And as a parent, you become very observant towards these kind of things, very sensitive. 
And of course you want to get them checked out and, and blah, 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 blah. And I had no idea. The doctor says, no, it's, it's, it's not uh, normal is perhaps, the, but it's nothing to worry about. It's, you know, if he's developing normal brain function, then it's, then he, he just has baby tremors. So the second fear that is combined with this is fear that your child will see something that they're not supposed to see on YouTube. Very 2023 fear. Oh, because yeah. YouTube, yeah. YouTube is a lot of AI generated shit and something that you think will be for kids will turn out to not be for kids. So <clears throat> in this story, a child comes upon a YouTube series called Carl the Cuttlefish. And it's a very colorful show, teaches numbers, letters. Uh, the parents, for all intents and purposes, think that it's completely fine. They go about their day. The kid's watching this series and everything seems fine until they turn it off. And they turn off the YouTube program. The child immediately begins to have tremors. And they oh. can't figure it out. They can't figure out why. Take him to the doctor. They say, well, this isn't baby tremors. Let's take him in for an MRI. Apparently, there's nothing wrong with the brain. So the parents go home and they're, they're exhausted and they're like, you know what, let's, you know, do you want to watch YouTube? They turn on Carl, the cuttlefish and the tremors go away. So they start thinking, oh my goodness, this is, I don't really know how to get out of this. This is really terrible. So Carl, the cuttlefish becomes a mainstay within this household. Carl, the cuttlefish is always on, even if it's just in the background, those little songs, the kid is always fine if he's sleeping or if he's watching this show. Well, the father character begins to catch glimpses of things on the show that don't seem quite right, right? Carl the Cuttlefish is slipping messages into his show in between the ABCs and the one, two, threes. He's also giving subtle hints that perhaps there's something called a patriarchy that needs to be dismantled. And maybe capitalism isn't really what we thought it was. So time goes on. The guy's looking through message boards, and apparently parents all over the country are experiencing the same thing with Carl the Cuttlefish. And so they are sending emails to the guy behind the show, who's a very mysterious fellow, but he won't respond to any of them. He says, no, it's just, you know, I'm just trying to teach kids how to live in this sort of modern world. And I want them to know where they're from and what their privileges really are. So the parents say, okay. Well, then one day, everything takes a turn for the worse. The father's watching the show with his son, and Carl the Cuttlefish all of a sudden becomes this horrific, awful mask of itself. And there's a tone that emanates out from it that the father can't hear exactly, but he begins seeing flashes of you know, pictures from, you know, Vietnam of the young girl being burned by napalm. Everything is just flashing in industrialization, pigs being slaughtered. And he snaps out of it. And his son is all of a sudden completely zombified, along with a majority of children in the United States of America. In this part of the story, we would cut to a montage of children rising up against the authorities that have kept them down. In particular, we would meet a child who is being uh, treated to a kind of Stanford marshmallow experiment where he's offered two, if he can hold out on one. You're familiar with this. With this yeah, story. yeah, yeah. And the child picks up a ballpoint pen and stabs the doctor through the ear and reaches into the entire marshmallow bag and says, I think I'll have all of the marshmallows. Thank you very much. In another scene, 
there is a child in a movie theater who is jumping up and down and acting rambunctious. And somebody walks up to the parent and says, you know, I would really appreciate it if you could control your child. And when he says that, all the heads of children in the theater turn to him and they converge upon him and begin to tear him apart. Finally, there's a scene of a doctor who's well known for providing Adderall prescriptions to children. His office becomes swarmed and the children shove an entire bottle of Adderall down his throat until he dies. Well, what are these parents to do? We'd follow this couple as they tried their best to keep their shaking son away from Carl the Cuttlefish, away from it. How does the spell get broken? I'll tell you. It's through no agency of the parents whatsoever. It comes on the news the next day that Carl the Cuttlefish, the actor, who, or the creator, has been me too He has been figured out as a serial date rapist. And while some people debate these claims online, because, you know, the women seem to have sex with him willingly, but then they regretted it later, that me tooing, the fact that he's no longer a righteous and good leader for the revolution, snaps all the children out of it immediately. And Carl the Cuttlefish ends. Okay. I think that's a, a really lovely allegory on many levels about what's going on today. I, I, I think that, you know, really could be a reasonable, uh, you know, pitch as a, as a mm-hmm. show idea. Um, because it is, you, you pick up on a lot of themes that are obvious worries within culture. I'm not sure. I think there are a lot of parents, you know, uh, who don't feel comfortable sharing uh some of these anxieties but really have them and i also like that the baby tremor thing was a nice specific thing from your own family life that mm-hmm. i think a lot of people may not know and, and and it's exactly that kind of information uh that used to be shared a lot more you know yeah. people would would meet I was thinking back to, you know, days in Oceania, particularly Vanuatu, where uh, women in the village where I was saying they, they would meet at the waterfall to do laundry, you know, and it was very, there was very much a woman's storytelling, yakking, arguing, settling the, the, you know, the women's business time. And then there was a time where, uh, it was would would obviously be about you know taking the laundry you know back mm-hmm. helping helping the women but doing that uh, in a certain male dignified way because that really was a patriarchal society and the 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 men would show up and would have uh, boxing matches in in shallow water which is kind of a beautiful but a lot of it was just playful and then there was water drumming so it would become it would move from this very much a women's time and from very very serious deep issues to that kind of sharing of of women's lore mother lore mm-hmm. uh and across generational lore about well yeah baby tremors are you know that those are normal and they would help the mothers the young mothers or the mothers to be get information about what's normal you know mm-hmm. how how do you deal with a fever you know you because 
there, there aren't doctors necessarily to call on and you couldn't be panicked all the time. So there was that way of sharing that kind of information, which I think a lot of people have lost today. So there's some interesting anxieties. You know, I mean, that's, I, I know a young couple. And uh, fortunately, one of them comes from a fairly big family and has some background, but the other doesn't. And, and it's like a panic merchant and yeah. doesn't want to be, you know, doesn't want to be freaked out by any little thing, but is nonetheless just doesn't have the experience to draw on, um, which is lifetime, you know, to connect with our time theme in lifetime equated with experience and knowledge. And if you don't have that, uh, so I think there are some cool things. Of course, the subliminal TV thing. I oh. love anything subliminal. I just love yeah. that. Yeah, that's one of one of my bits. So the three fears were the physical. There's the accidental shattering of innocence that is ubiquitous on the internet because you're only ever a click away from porn. And the third is brainwashing. <laughs> the third is brainwashing. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, I'm I am hyper concerned. <clears throat> I probably brought this up on the show before. I have, in fact, only a few episodes ago that one of my biggest fears is what are these teachers going to tell my kid? You know, it's a real it's a real concern. Because I think it's a very legitimate concern. And I think the people who um, well, anyone who thinks that's conspiratorial uh, in, in thinking is is really pretty pretty far left i mm-hmm, think mm-hmm. uh and is is very likely part of an indoctrination sort of mode that uh is very it's very it's it's definitely there it's not there in every school it's not there in every situation no one's saying that but it is there and even if it weren't so uh quite explicitly formed now and talked about Nonetheless, it's certainly a reasonable concern for parents to be wondering, well, what is being taught? You know, what's going on? Who's having an influence? And I think that the anxiety about the Internet and and through that television is also an enormous concern Mm -hmm. uh, because it just one click away from porn, just one click, click away from consumerism. You know, yeah. that's a kind of, yeah. of deep pornography. And it it's getting to kids younger and younger and younger. I mean, I think that's the ultimate pornography is when you have, you know, kids in third grade who are already brand conscious. I mean, that's indoct. I mean, no one can say that's not happening. Yeah. That's absolutely. Ha- and that's been happening since I was a kid. You know, mm-hmm. if you'd asked me at, you know, age eight, what kind of shoes I want. Well, I want PF Flyers. Because they're the kid, you know, shoes that help kids, you know, make kids run faster and jump higher, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was there an argument? No, mm-hmm. no, there wasn't an argument because Johnny Quest was the representative for PF Flyers. Hey, now that's you going back. Johnny Quest. Yeah. I mean, this has been forming as a giant talk about a giant clockwork machine, right? Mm-hmm. This indoctrination program has been worked out now for at least 50 years and it's getting more and more sophisticated. So I, I like that. It's interesting to me what you chose as the mechanism to break the spell. And I think that's a playful poke 
at a lot of the liberal parent uh, programs of today. It's certainly, uh, I wouldn't say it's a blowgun dart aimed at the NPR listeners of, of America, mm-hmm. but it kind of is. Mm-hmm. It kind of mm-hmm. is. And I think that's an interesting uh, point of resolution. How would you have dealt with the fall from grace, so to speak, if the cuttlefish protagonist, antagonist character uh, had been female? Oh, that's really interesting. <clears throat> and that might have very well how it would have developed if, if in a TV series way today. Oh, I, I like that. You know, I like that for a sequel. I like for I like the male fall from grace and then the uh, the the woman comes in. Well, I think that it could be funny to just make it so that nothing works right on the show anymore. <laughs> well, but could it also work in a kind of um, Alyssa Nutting Tampa sort of way? Mm-hmm. Of the if it were oh, female, like making her a molester. Right. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, wouldn't mm-hmm. that be even kind of more uh, mm-hmm. disturbing in some way? I feel like that's the plot to this new movie, Tar, Tear. Tar yeah. With, uh, is it Kate Blanchett who's in this yes. movie? I, I, I have her. I, 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 that's my interpretation. I haven't seen it. I haven't either. It's gotten, uh, it's gotten some awards or certainly the nominations. I'm kind of curious about that. I, I didn't I didn't have that fully formed in my mind until you said that. But that that was kind of my, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. Uh, perception of it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what that what I've heard is that it's a Me Too movie where the protagonist is a female. I could be totally wrong though because I haven't seen the movie. Well, but... I'd like to see it on that basis because I do think that that's a theme worth exploring. Maybe it's been pulled out a little bit, but I still think it's worth looking at more mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but i love that idea for carl the cuttlefish being a being a woman it would be so perfect or a trans person or something like that some some you know you know demographic that is currently in vogue uh <laughs> could you imagine the firestorm that would happen if you had a movie uh where a trans person was brainwashing kids through youtube <laughs> as it's messed well, I mean, look at the... You get you know, into so I mean, much trouble. You would get into so much trouble. But isn't that just a reasonable extrapolation of the drag queen story hour anxiety? That's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's, yeah. it would come from the drag queen story hour stuff. It would be like a... Yeah, we would have to take Carl the Cuttlefish to whatever uh, whatever studio is currently greenlighting uh, conservative films. I don't know if you've seen this, but there's like a new studio that's getting uh big actors there was a uh it's the um oh goodness is it Who's breitbart that i remember I think, it's it's i think it's breitbart i think it's either breitbart or ben shapiro or both who are because there's a horror movie that came out and i remember very specifically that it that ben shapiro now i think has a production company where he's putting these really i didn't know that and the movie oh, I... that he put out, by the way, the horror film, because, you know, very typically I, I grew up in an era of Christian films, which are all universally terrible and awful and preachy. But the movie that he released, let's see if I can find it, because it got pretty good reviews. Hold on. Let's see. Uh, 
Ben Shapiro horror movie. Shut in is the name of it. Say he's Shut a horror in. film unto himself, which I he is. Yeah, I, he's. You know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I think the Daily Wire makes the. What's it called? It's the movie's called Shut In, and Daily Wire is, is the one that's putting out conservative films. Okay. <clears throat> Shut it. This is from religionunplugged.com. Shut in is a rare R-rated faith-friendly thriller that works. It's a solid home invasion horror film that seamlessly integrates faith with its claustrophobic thrills. Sounds like not my thing at all, but good for them. <laughs> They're trying. I, I disagree. I think you've got a professional obligation, and I include myself. We got to watch it. That out. Oh, I, I, I think yeah. With that kind of of, of log line read in background, uh, I, I think yeah, that's got to be investigated at least. I'll watch it if I you want to watch it. That's it's we can pretty do movie weird. Review that sounds like. I mean, I don't know. It's intriguing. Uh, yeah, know. you see little pokes. You see little uh, S. Craig Zoller is another filmmaker who seems to be fitting in to a more conservative framework. I don't know if you saw Bone Tomahawk or Dragged Across Concrete, but the latter film. No, I haven't. I love the title. It, def- it, it was definitely a. It's with. Um, it's a dirty cop movie with um, <clears throat> with Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn in the leads. And oh, wow. it's fan- it's phenomenal. It's fantastic, but it is very much a conservative talking. Well, Vince Vaughn is, is famously one of the the very few openly uh, conservative yeah. Hollywood people, and Mel's kind of in his own weird class. He, he's just anti-Semitic. <laughs> well, and we, yeah, well, he's part of Opus Day, which is a pretty sort of right. you know, uh, if you could be a fundamentalist sort of Catholic sort of thing, yeah. that's kind right. of out there right uh, right, right oh right. that sounds really crazy i i don't yeah. know yeah we'll have to excuse me we'll have to check that out uh so. we, we uh let's get to and i'm excited to hear these because you pumped me up for them the tool the tip and the dream okay well i'll give you this the simple bit of the tool first but it, it gets in one sense it, it's get drawing We've talked about this before, and and you've given us some examples. It's just such a powerful uh, tool technique of just to try to visualize, to create interesting new schematics, and to really reach out and and push the organic envelope there, to really break the right angle thing, and to go for for more rhizome-based drawings. So here's an example of that. And I, I think you've got to give yourself room to work. I, you know, get beyond just the A4 size paper. Get a get a sheet of butcher paper and, and give yourself some, some room because this is going to be, uh, well, it, it's organic. Because the real deal here is to create mental and dimensional, to give mental and dimensional shape to the idea of story. Mm-hmm. The deep idea of story as a strategy for navigating time. And it this is one of the great problems of civilization is how do we create visualizations of time? The clock fate, you know, the, the circular sort of one, uh, we have dimensional frameworks for time, but how we can 
really get a hold of that because we've talked about the problems with metaphors you know is it a river uh is it an arrow is it a wheel you know mm-hmm, well mm-hmm. rather than try to focus on time directly i'm suggesting try to diagram and give drawing shape to story and to maybe pick a kind of odd uh story not one literally uh as in a piece of fiction but maybe a, a story from from one's own life and here's an example that i've been working on i shared with you and listeners uh the drama and trauma that i experienced in my last uh place the condo and it's been about a year that i've been out of there and there the woman who uh lived downstairs from me she died suddenly and her two sons who are really hardened convicts with multiple arrests for robbery uh meth production parole violation guns i mean hardcore prison california All the classic stuff died. yeah yeah well i rewound that and so this relates to time as stories do and i was thinking about the first moment that I realized that the mother, when she was alive, was really a problem. She she was a problem. And the sons were not really uh, that much of a surprise in the end. She was a serious alcoholic and she did have some, some mental illness problems as well. But, you know, people with a bit of money, sometimes they can hide that. And I didn't really know what what the the story was with her until one night i was doing a journalism piece for um knpr the npr station and they were sending out local writers to different locations at three o'clock in the morning what's going on at that point and i drew uh a walmart at a particular location um at 3 a.m so i was there and I wrote my piece. And but while I was shopping at Walmart or, or, or doing the story researching, I thought I would do some shopping. So I brought all the stuff home. And it was more than just, you know, I could take up the stairs. I lived in a second story condo. So I brought it down to the base of the stairs. And while I was unloading the second go round, the stuff vanished. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what? And so I took up the other load, locked my car, and uh, I was living with Diane then. And uh, she was waiting up for me because wanting to know if, you know, everything was okay. And I said, you know, this is the damnedest thing. Uh, I had all these groceries and they disappeared. And uh, she said, I, th- I think I know what happened. I think downstairs, I think she's, she snitched them. I think she, I said, no. And uh, I went down and I heard someone swimming in the pool. It's Vegas, you can, you know, get, and she's swimming stark naked. And I said, you know, excuse me, did you happen to see these groceries? And she goes, were they yours? You know, just completely out of it. And I, I thought, I'm not really sure what, you know, I was just so freaked out and so angry. And um, so I went upstairs and, and Diane said, well, I'm, I'm going to go down and talk to the old guy, her, the boyfriend. Well, now here's the thing. 
this woman was was my age and the her boyfriend was 25 years older and she'd had a history of this she'd been looking after older men so see the story start to spread out and i'm trying to sort of draw it around so diana's in going back to you know get the groceries and the old man the boyfriend is apologetic but we're starting to get the sense that this woman is really not normal and is going in and out of time and every once in a while, I see her in the pool and she makes comments about these, these, this family in California that she doesn't want to have anything to do with. And of course, they're first to descend the moment that she does mysteriously die. Did she fall over drunk and hit her head? Or did the old guy finally have enough? You know, and this story gets weirder and weirder and starts to ripple out. And then at one point when she is dead and the brothers are downstairs and it's really starting to look like, yeah, this is a real police problem. There's there. The, the cops are coming all the time, but they're not able to do anything despite a parole violation, which is really strange. And I had I was finishing the textbook at the time. And so I, I took. A little break and went off to this motel because I was looking at buying this house I'm in now and getting all that organized, but I really needed a clear head. So I'm staying miles away at this motel and I go to the convenience store around the corner from the motel and who do, who walks in but the big brother, you know, with his Aryan Nation prison tattoos. And I thought, wait a minute, this is 10 miles. This is not, this is weird. This is mm -hmm. weird. So I'm drawing away. And what I start to form is, again, one of these algorithms for how certain, certainly my karma and my mind and association works. But I'm starting to get this Mark Lombardi visualization of story. How, mm -hmm. of where do you stop and start? This is the question all authors ask. You know, maybe you don't, maybe you jump into a story and that's how you get launched. So you don't have to think about the beginning, but the middle and the end are going to, something's going to throw you about how you give shape to, to time. And my thinking about this now is to not try to do that in words and language first, but to try to get out there with some sort of visual meeting, whether it be marker, felt pens, chalk, uh, charcoal on butcher paper, mm -hmm. you know, but to try to get some dimension out, even if it looks like oil stains spreading and, you know, like gasoline in a puddle rainbowing out, let it be as organic and um, really pixelated and as completely unmathematical as it as it needs to be and then to apply the math to start mm -hmm. looking at it in terms of Mandelbrot set sort of you know ideas but let that strangeness get visualized in front of me. and I eventually you know realized well where did that story start and stop because I feel it has stopped now. I've left that behind. 
And I kind of realized, well, I got doing this because, well, it's coming up to a year anniversary of me moving in. I'm starting, you know, new insurance policies, new these things. So I took myself back in time to a year ago. What was I doing? Well, I was dealing with this family and this rippling out of problems. And the ripples do stop. There is a kind of organic finish to it. But only when I'd really done some drawing and 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 spilling, you know, mm -hmm. I actually started mm -hmm. spilling some coffee and um I had some maple syrup, which is sort of sticky and stuff. But that's what that situation was like. It was mm -hmm. sticky. It wasn't mm -hmm. just a nice two-dimensional color, you know, it, it got granular and difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think that 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 aggressive, assertive, physical dimensional engagement with the idea of story and and maybe just a very personal thing before it becomes any idea that you'd ever want to write about gives you a clearer sense of of what story means to you and therefore is a kind of a map of how you're dealing with time so that's a complicated tool but i think it does get down to the idea of drawing your way uh, it's always labyrinth and map making. A map is a maze, and and we're always doing that, trying to find our way out and our way in. You know, it's my favorite tool so far. That's great. Oh well, thank you. I, it's I was thinking of you, you know, going away to do some writing, and I just I love the idea of getting some visual magic, you mm -hmm. know, to take mm -hmm. with you, and and you've got a good, you know lean towards that naturally and you do like to do and, and it's i think there's some interesting things that will come out of that but it uh it's also a great way to break any kind of writer's block if you're really mm -hmm. looking at this in terms of you know very pointed writerly advice well don't write for a little bit draw you know and really get some other other world and I find when I do it, it's like another creature coming out. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I don't feel uh, associated with it directly. It feels very automatic and uh, in a surrealist sort of sense. And I'm getting a hold of that third mind. I'd rather have the third mind than the third man. You know, uh, it, yeah. it's another orientation. No, I love that. I've been um, I've been thinking a lot about these oblique strategies for for writing yeah and uh the one that i learned is that for me <clears throat> and i'm definitely going to integrate this process into it because i find that it's fascinating especially because i'm writing cyberpunk now so what would that look like chrome silver spray paint that type of thing yeah. but i've been uh i've i finally realized that my writer's block quote unquote whenever i think that i've had that it's an interesting term i think it's fair to say it exists it's caused because a writing session for me begins with a 15 to 20 minute pacing session i have to pace and i would sit down in front of a computer and nothing would come out and nothing would come out and then unthinking, not being cognizant of what I was doing, 
I'd get up and pace and then the writing would come out. And this, uh, not this particular writing retreat that Rios and I did, but the one before it was the one where I was in the middle of pacing. And I thought to myself, oh my God, the pacing is part of the writing, the physicality of it. Absolutely. Right with your whole body. I just couldn't support that. That's something that's mentioned in my textbook on in multiple ways in, in, in different sections. I think that's so important. And there are, I mean, pace is pace is tempo, <laughs> you know, that's yep. really important. And, you know, one interesting uh, way to uh, enhance the dimensionality of that is to um, most uh, people would have access to one of the basic music uh, recording composition programs. If you're on Apple, like, you know, just garage, you don't even have to go to logic pro, but you can access uh, the metronome function and you can get, and it's very interesting to really hear like basic four, four time, regular time, but to hear that. And just to, I think for people, particularly people who are, 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 coming at it more from a writing point of view than music to have that, that four, four time, just in the back of your mind a little bit before you say, start a writing session. It's interesting how that permeates things because then you can start thinking about burying that and thinking Mm -hmm. about how, how that works. And it certainly does work in terms of dialogue. You know, Mm -hmm. you want to have some variation there and you do, and, mm-hmm. and you develop that ear sense. And I think that's a great way to, um, to get this uh, extra energy. And, and the oblique strategy idea is a lovely, you know, that's a Brian Eno's uh, sort of divination thought starter, you know, break the ice, break the, the ice, the log jam. Yeah. Uh, those are really cool. I, I, I think any of those things are, mm. are great. And this tip, uh, the tip this uh, week ties in beautifully with that. Again, really easy to say, but hard to do. But I, I absolutely support it. Try narrating yourself aloud for at least one full hour. It's difficult, but it can be done. And be as precise as you can let the OCD mania just go (laughs) completely real big time. And you get to choose your narration style. You can go basic, crazy, homeless street poet. You could go Morgan Freeman or Jessica rabbit or a football sportscaster. Who's just cranked up. Yeah, <laughs> John Madden. Whatever voice, think of it like being, you know, on a synthesizer, but to just relentlessly and religiously narrate one hour of your private life with a kind of autistic intensity, mm-hmm. record it and listen to it back, and it will be interesting. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to put that on, uh, I'm going to put that online. (laughs) It will be very, very instructive. It will be entertaining for Mm -hmm. 
us to listen to, but it'll be very instructive. It, believe me, if you dig into that and really, really do it with full Zen, mm-hmm. uh, like Tyson Gusto, mm-hmm. uh, it will be interesting. It I'm going to do it in the style of Philip K. Dick, and I'm going to have Harrison Ford's voice from the Blade Runner monologue in my head <laughs> when I'm doing that's it. That's great. I see. I just think that's that's so cool. Mm-hmm. And you'll so come up with something really interesting, and it will really dovetail uh, with what you're working on. You know, it really will. It will always somehow fit in there. It's. Excellent. I think it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing, and it's completely free. Yeah, yeah. Anybody's anybody can do it. Um, did you have any dreams? Yeah. I've been. I've got to get more on this, man. I've got to um, start keeping. This is what I take my. This is what I take my lost explorers. I love notes that. In. That's really beautiful. But I, this, I've got this for listeners. I'm holding up this little moleskin. Uh, the only thing I don't like about it is the, the bendable cover. I should have gotten a hardback journal for yeah. because a lot of the writing that I do, you know, when I'm talking to you, I'm kind of having to use my palm and I feel yeah, very Yeah, no, you you get a writer's rein, you know. They have mm-hmm. they have a small but it because you can use it as a, you know, as a mm-hmm. as a writing surface. Yeah, that's you know? the thing. I need a surface basically. Uh but I I want to get a journal because I love buying journals uh, specifically for dreams, because I had some bangers this week and I cannot remember them. So look, I, I think that they will stimulate a level of awareness and create a, they'll oscillate into a frequency of their own that will make you more receptive and capable of retaining uh, dreams from now on. If you, it is tricky though. But savor that sense of, of, I mean, you have a sense that there was a lot of dream activity and that Mm -hmm. alone is important. That's an energized state to be in of its own. So I don't think you've, no dream is ever totally lost. I just, Mm -hmm. I just don't believe that. Mm -hmm. I think it's always changing shape and influencing, but, but that sense of almost and Mm -hmm. that almost remembered almost retained i think that's a very very rich psychic state it's a little bit like um in a, in a different right but it, it it reminds me of of the idea of tantric sex you know which i think is very appealing very, again a very hard discipline and and with that tantrics I, of course there's you know your partner lover really on the page with that this you you don't so much but i think you need to have some kind of uh real intimacy with your own dreaming mind which is 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 tricky to maintain but i i like the sound that, that, that there's a richness in the dreaming phase and i wonder if it's not connected with uh what sounds like a very successful uh sojourn in taos and your clear uh refreshment from relative to last week i mean you really do seem uh uplifted not and 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 it kind of in a natural easy way not like oh you know Um, (laughs) and i i think that 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 awareness of the richness of of dreams in a kind of atmospheric way is almost as as important as as really vivid memories of something specific 
I think right. that's cool. I have that a lot. I mean, I try, I, I, it can be frustrating. And I think that's kind of what you're saying. There's a little bit of sense of, oh, damn, you know, or this lost, you know, mm-hmm. river of, of wonder. But if you can get past that frustration and just groove on the fact that there was some real energy there mm-hmm. uh, and try to enjoy that, I think it'll come, you know, but cool. it's always hard. It's just to record. And I've tried every, met, you know, notebooks, tape recorders, uh, forced waking, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, mm-hmm. but here's my, uh, rather than having immensely uh, sort of, well, complex, uh, compelling dreams, what I've had is little glimpses into my personal dream algorithms. And mm-hmm. this kind of ties in with the, the theme of the tips and the tools lately that I think all of these, you know, it's like Zen in the art of motorcycle. I mean, it's the, the motorcycle you're working on is always yourself. You know, and that's what I'm really talking is, is how dreams can give us maybe some insights into bigger associative patterns. So I realized one of mine and and this isn't definitive, but I've been wondering for a long, long time about where and what mechanisms are in play when I have a dream that resonates with something from the last 24 hours okay something mm-hmm. that was actually experienced and i can i can draw the line upon waking it may be weird and and there are very you know there's some interesting things going on but i watched the uh movie the two jakes jack nicholson's uh direction of the sequel to chinatown mm-hmm. it's a similar mm-hmm. world okay la noir and again, written by Robert Town, who wrote the great Chinatown screenplay. It it doesn't have as well, it doesn't have Jerry Goldsmith's soundtrack and beautiful theme music, but nonetheless, it's 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 a pretty good effort. But there is a moment in there uh when Jack Nicholson at revising or reprising his uh private detective role has this uh idiot cop down on the floor in the police precinct and takes the guy's gun and makes him swallow it. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. he's not really going to shoot him, but he's really just, he hates this dude and he wants to really scare him. And the guy pisses his pants Mm -hmm. and it's really, uh, there's a real sort of focus on the amount of of piss pouring in the back (laughs) of the puddle. Okay. Well that night, I had a dream with uh, that involved connecting with this woman who was a clear but vague, still composite of three women I've known in my life. And this sexual scene unfolds. And I get her clothes off, which she's eager to sort of help with but she is just vaginally soaked. She's more Mm -hmm. than just turned on. It's this actual problem. I mean, (laughs) there's going to be no friction. It's, you know, and it's, it's frustrating. And it's also scary because it does seem like, uh, well, dysfunctional, like a, like an illness of some kind. Mm -hmm. And I woke up then and I realized, okay, 
how long has it been on the clock, so to speak, since I watched that scene in that movie? And I was surprised that it was exactly, exactly four hours. And then I'd woken up early, you know, in a cycle. And I started to piece things together and I started to look at, well, what had I eaten and when had I eaten? And I made notes about that. And I went back to my dream index and I found that this has been, insofar as I've been able to record it, this has been a pattern that's repeated four times that I have been able to write down in the last five years. And I thought, I'm going to really pay attention to this now because this is something within a 24-hour period where something in real life made its way into the dream. You know, it's not from the past. It's not a recurring motif. It's something that was obviously influenced. And I know that the time that I watched the film, I know that my I ate late. And I also know that I felt overheated. I felt like uh, it wasn't as cold sleeping in the bedroom as I wanted it to be. So mm -hmm. all of those factors got me thinking about it. And I just, that's my own personal routine, my own personal, you know, algorithmic uh, motif matrix. But I think when we get alert to that, we start to, you know, understand more things about how the associative patterns that, that really are private and, and special and eccentric to us, how those work. And if we can get the more we hands we can get on that, I think the more we understand ourselves. Perfect. Stop it right there.